Uh, Pastor Dave is out uh, for the day, and uh, since he is out, we're actually taking a break from our, our trek through the book of Romans. Uh, we're taking a break in part because this week we're starting up a season of Lent. Lent is the 40 days prior to Easter. Oftentimes, it's just a time during the church's life where we spend extra time in prayer, extra time in fasting. Uh, so we, we, we will be talking about prayer this morning out of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some under the benches you're sitting on uh, in front of you, and on those Bibles will be on page 912. Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 21, page 912. Our verses that we're focusing in on are verse 23 through 31, but it's impossible to really talk about these verses without getting the greater context of what's happening. So whenever you're reading the Bible and you're trying to interpret and trying to find application from the Bible, one of the important things to always remember is that context is king. Uh, It's very important for you to know the context of what is said around a particular passage, uh, just to ensure that, that you come to the right conclusions about what the passage is saying. So for us to really understand what's happening in Acts chapter 4, 23, we really have to know what's happening in Acts chapters 1, 2, and 3. So I want to give you a brief uh, kind of catch up on what's happening up until this point. Book of Acts, we found that uh, at the beginning of Acts, Jesus Christ has been crucified on the cross. He died. He was buried in the tomb. And the third day he rose again. Now the book of Acts tells us that after Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, that he spent about 40 days with the disciples, teaching them, training them, spending time with them. And after Jesus then ascended into the heavens, the disciples were in an upper room praying, and it's at that time that they were filled up with the Holy Spirit. They were given a boldness to go out and to proclaim the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that gets us to about Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, we have a story that I just absolutely love. We find Peter and John walking through Jerusalem, going to the temple to pray. And as they are going into the temple to pray, they pass through this gate. And at this gate, there is a lame man, a man who cannot walk, he cannot use his legs. He is sitting there on the ground, and he turns to Peter and John and asks them for some money. And we have this iconic line from Peter at this moment, where Peter looks down at the man, and he says, I have no silver, and I have no gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And in the name of Jesus, I want you to stand up and walk. And that man, who had been lame and begging at that gate for decades, was able to stand up, and go into the temple with Peter and John. Now, you can imagine the man's shock and his wonder and his awe. I don't know if he's ever been able to use his legs, but now at this moment, he can, and he has strength and ability. You think he would go into this temple quietly? No. He is, he is pumped. He's excited. He goes in there praising God, doing a little jig. He's happy. And everyone turns their attention to him, and they recognize him. 
they recognized this man because this man had been sitting at the same gate asking for money year in and year out. They recognized him because he stopped them when they were coming into the temple and said, hey, can you spare a little silver, a little gold, something, something for me to eat? And so their attention turned to Peter and they turned to John. And Peter and John take an opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his death, his resurrection, and the forgiveness of sins that we can have when we repent and believe the good news. The officials did not like what was going on. Many people believed in this Jesus Christ of whom they just crucified. And so they go in there with their guards. They arrest Peter. They arrest John. And they treat them like the town drunk. They take them. They throw them in prison overnight. And the next day, they're discussing, what do we do? What do we do with these two men who we know that they were with Jesus? We saw them with Jesus. We know that they healed this man. There is no denying this miracle that took place. What are we going to do? If, if we kill them, everyone will know that we're in the wrong because God has done this miraculous thing. And so they bring Peter and John in and they said, listen, you have to stop proclaiming Jesus. And once again, Peter has this beautiful line where he says this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They said there is something within us, there is a fire burning within us, much like was in the prophet of Jeremiah, where we just cannot be silent about Jesus. We have to speak of his name. We have to tell people what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have experienced. We have to tell people of the hope we have in him. Frustrated, the leaders just let them go. And that leads us to chapter 4, verse 23 on page 912 in the Pew Bibles. Let's read this. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had to say to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the nations rage? And why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand planned and predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that though the nations are still raging, and though they still plot in vain against your anointed, against our Lord Jesus Christ, that we, like Peter and Paul and John and all the disciples, would continue to proclaim your word and your gospel with all boldness. Father, like your disciples, may we be people of prayer, continually coming to your throne of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a couple of weeks, we are sending a team of 10 people uh, down to Guatemala, and they will be spending a week there helping out our sister church. They'll be proclaiming the gospel. They'll be praying with the church. And when I was preparing the sermon, I couldn't help but think about uh, the trips that I've taken down there. And I remember my first trip was about six years ago, and we had made these food baskets up. Uh, it's about food for a month. It's like 10 bucks for food for a month. And we would take it to the homes, and we would deliver it to families who were in need. And we just took the opportunity to ask them what we could pray for them for, and uh, we'd share the gospel with them. And then before we left the first house, I said, well, let's pray together. And so we all gathered around, bowed our head, closed our eyes, and I started to pray. And what happened next completely took me off guard. Uh, Because the person across from me started praying at the same time. And the person on either side of me also started praying out loud at the same time. I thought, what's going on here? Like, did I miscommunicate? Do they think that I asked them to pray? But I thought, you know, I'm going to go with it. Uh, and I went with it, and we went to the next house, did the same thing, bowed to pray, same exact same thing happened. And it didn't take long for me to realize that there was just a cultural difference between the way that we pray together and the way that the Guatemalan church pray together. When we pray, oftentimes one person will lead the prayer, and we, in silence, will agree with God about what's being prayed, and we will say amen. It's very orderly very calm, very normal to us. But when you go to Guatemala, that's not the way they do it. And they say, let's pray. They say, all right, let's pray. And they're all praying at the same time. And over the years, one of the things I've noticed about our sister church, uh, Pastor Philemon, and and the church's name is uh, Jesus is Our Light and Salvation, our sister church down there, is that they have a very high emphasis on prayer and they have a very high emphasis on praying together. Last time when I was down there in January, I went to their uh, church service, and I was able to sit and watch this church, uh, a church in a highly impoverished area, pray for us, and then have a little presentation about the church in Jordan, and they prayed for the church in Jordan, and they were praying for God's mission to be accomplished in those places, I mean, I was just struck at, at their emphasis and their dependence on prayer. I feel like the church in America, that praying together has fallen on hard times. It used to be that when I was growing up, I, I 
I feel so old when I say that now. When I was, when I was growing up, uh, but, but when I was growing up, you had in your church your normal Wednesday evening prayer meeting. And just over the years, over the decades, that practice has kind of fallen by the wayside where we don't gather together for the purpose of prayer anymore. I do think that that, that practice still exists in some churches, um, but oftentimes that prayer meeting has less to do with praying for the mission of God and the kingdom of God, and it's devolved more into praying for each other's ailments and our pain that we have. And what we need in our church, what we need in our culture, is a movement back towards and an emphasis back on praying together, that we need to pray together. So this passage that we're looking at today in Acts chapter 4, we see three applications, three truths that lead us to pray together. And the first one is that itself, that we are to pray with friends. Look at verse 23, what, the, what Luke writes here. He says, when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends. He didn't say that they went to the church or they went to the congregation. It said that they went to their friends to pray with. Now, we know from just reading the Bible that they went to the other disciples. So what? I just love the way that, that he described the congregation, how he described the church. He described it in this way, that, that when they needed prayer, they went back to the people who were their congregation, to the people who, who were the church. That's who they went to. That's who they prayed with, large in part because that's who they had the most in common with. My question to you this morning is, is do you count your closest friends to whom you have the most in common with as other people in our church, as other people in our congregation? Because the truth of the matter is, you have more in common with a person sitting next to you in this church than you do with your unbelieving coworker or your unbelieving neighbor. In fact, I, I read a tweet earlier this week by Trevin Wax, and he said this, and I had to read it like three times before I could agree with it. And he said this, American believers have more in common with Arab believers in Iraq and Syria than they do with their next door unbelieving neighbors. And I don't know if you're like me, when I first heard that, I'm like, wait a second. Let, let me read that again, see if I agree with it. American believers have more in common with Arab believers in Iraq and Syria than they do with their unbelieving next-door neighbors. Even though that there is a language barrier, even though there is a wide gulf of this culture barrier, even though you might have different interests and hobbies, what this author was saying was that because we have the Spirit of God living in us, because we all share in one baptism, and we have one God, and we have one Lord, and we have one Spirit, and we read the same Bible, and our hope is in the same heaven. We have more in common with a believer in a different culture than we do with the unbeliever living next door to us. I had to say that that statement was said in such a way where I'm like, really? But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yes, it's true. 
Therefore, I think the place where we ought to find our deepest, our most intimate community is with the people in our own local congregation. And it's so easy for us to be a part of Grace Bible Church, but yet not participate in Grace Bible Church. It is so easy to wake up Sunday morning behind schedule, trying to get the kids dressed, trying to get the dishes washed, or at least in the sink, and get to church. And man, by the time I got here, man, the second song's already going on. So we walk in in darkness, and we sit down by ourselves. We sing the songs, we hear a sermon, and then, man, we got to get. And so we, we, we head out. And it's so easy to come here on Sunday morning without engaging any other person. But I want to encourage you, and I want to say to you that, that if that's what you're doing, you're really not attending church. Yeah, you're in a service. You're hearing a sermon. You're singing some songs, but, but you are not engaging the church. It is the followers of Jesus which make up the church. And if we come together and we are these islands unto ourselves and we're not engaging with each other, then we're missing church. We have ways that we have tried to set up uh, for you to engage with one another. We have small groups. We have some classes. Uh, we'll, we'll do events every now and again. But, man, we, we just encourage you and we implore you that if you want to grow in your faith, if, if, if you want to flourish in your faith, then you have to be in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a small group in our church. Every now and again, when we try to form a new small group, we find somebody who would make a good leader. We ask them to put together a core team, and we try to launch them to, to recruit people to be a part of it. But every now and again, and my job is super easy. Uh, we, we have one group. Uh, it has just started because people sat next to each other. They sat right over there in the first service, uh, and, and they would sit next to each other every Sunday, and they would welcome each other, and, and they would answer the awkward question that we put up on the screen. And, and then after they got to know each other for a few weeks, they said, hey, let's, let's go grab lunch afterwards. Let's go eat. Well, I guess it's in the first service. It would be brunch. Let's go eat brunch afterwards. Uh, and so they did that. And after they sat together and after they go to brunch together, they finally said, man, we, we, we ought to study the Bible together. And so unbeknownst to any pastor or any elder or any deacon or anyone else, they just started getting together the same night of week, opening the Bible, reading it, discussing it, and praying together. And so by the time we found out about this group, we thought, man, this is great. Just kind of keep on going. We'll put your name on the wall outdoor. We'll call you a real bi- a, a official small group, but you just keep doing what you're doing. But it was friends coming together, knowing one another, building relationship with one another, reading the Bible together, praying together. That's what it means to be a part of the church. But we see that they just did not meet together and hang out. But when these friends gathered together in John chapter 4, they actually prayed together. I think private prayer is great. We need to continue in private prayer, but somehow in our mind... And in our culture, we were always told our faith ought to be private. We have equated this discipline of prayer with something that we do by ourselves. We pray in our own homes, or we pray in our own bed before we go to sleep, or we pray in the car while we're driving to work. 
but we think prayer is something that, that is regulated to the side. It's just something that we do by ourselves. But Peter and John show us that prayer ought to take place amongst our friends. It is a community activity. We know that when we read the Bible. When we read the Bible, when we come to the book of Psalms, oftentimes called the prayer book of God's people, the book of Psalms was written to be used in a congregation with multiple people. When we go to Jesus' model prayer, the Lord's prayer, and we read it, we have to realize that this is a community prayer. It doesn't say, my Father who art in heaven. It says, our Father who art in heaven. It doesn't say, give, us this, give me today my daily bread. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. It is a, it is a community prayer. And so when we gather together as believers, we ought to gather together in prayer. And I know that can be hard, uh, especially if you're not from the Christian faith or you're new to the Christian faith, to start praying out loud together. But it's just one of the things that we kind of have to push through the awkwardness. And, and the only way we're going to learn how to swim is if we're like pushed in the deep end on this. Uh, so if you're like, man, I don't know how to pray out loud. The only way you're going to learn is by praying out loud. So I, I would start off, if I were you, if, if that's you and you're like, man, I, I just don't know how to cross that line, start start with the easy stuff. Start with your mealtime prayer. Oftentimes when we sit down together with other people, we, we pray for our food before we eat. Just extend that a little bit and make that just a prayer time. I meet with some guys on Tuesday morning at Hallmark where they have like the greasiest eggs in town, but it's, it's, it's clean. It's, it's like essential clean right there, the Hallmark restaurant. Uh, and before we sit down, we order and we get our food, like we're we're talking with each other. We're finding out about the stresses at work or the sicknesses in our family or the challenges we're facing. And oftentimes when the food finally gets to our table and we're ready to bless it, we just kind of extend that meal time prayer into just prayer together. Where yes, we thank God for the food, but we're also praying for our brother who's having this trial or for for this family who has some illness or for another family that we know of that's struggling. Just extend that a little bit and, and pray for each other as well. Also, I'd say make sure if you're in a small group or if you're leading a small group that you use that time to pray well, that you're praying for each other, but you're also praying for the mission of God. And if you are a parent of children, I would say it is your duty to model to your kids how to pray. That your kids ought to have memories of their mom and their dad leading their family together in prayer. We also have a few other opportunities to kind of help us pray together. We have the half day of prayer every month. Uh, It's on a Saturday. It's coming up on the 11th of March up at the Plaza del Sol. From 8 to noon, people just get together and pray. During this time slot, uh, 10.30, we have a room up at the Plaza del Sol where there is a prayer and intercession meeting where people can come together and pray. But we need to move towards this idea and concept that God's people pray together. Our next truth that we come through here in, John, in, in Acts chapter 4 
is that not only do God's people pray together and they pray with friends, but they pray with confidence. Let's look at verses 24 through 28 at their prayer. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What we see in this passage in the prayer of the friends of John and Peter and the other disciples is that they had confident prayers. A confident prayer is a prayer that is focused on and centered on who our God is. Notice how they addressed God. They said, Sovereign Lord. This term is used very rarely in the New Testament. When you look at the Greek, the word Sovereign Lord is the same word with which we derive the word despot from, an absolute ruler. And oftentimes when we think of of despots in, in, in our world today, we think of these harsh dictators who rule through fear and violence and oppression. And that's what they're calling God. God, you, you're our despot. There's a big difference between an earthly absolute ruler and our heavenly absolute ruler. Absolute rulers on this earth who rule through fear and violence and oppression do so out of greed for power, to maintain it, to exert it. But that is not who our Heavenly Father is. Our Heavenly Father rules in kindness and love and compassion. Says in the Bible that the reason He has not come to judge the earth yet is because He is waiting with patience for those who do not know Him to come to know Him. But they do focus on the fact that our God is an absolute ruler. We see this further on down in verse 28 when he said that what happened to Jesus under Herod and Pontius Pilate was predestined by God to take place. That it was, I mean, look at that word, how do we parse predestined? What does it mean? It means destined beforehand, right? Predestined. God ordained it. And oftentimes when people talk about predestination in the Bible or in theology today, they say, well, if God predestined things to happen, what's the point of prayer? If it's already mapped out, why pray? But notice what, what this doctrine does for the disciples. A belief in God's predestination, a belief in God as an absolute ruler, did not cause them to give up on prayer but it caused them to pray with confidence and with passion and with power. That prayer we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We can know and pray 
with confidence that God's will will be done because our God is sovereign. And when we pray that prayer, we know for certain that that is going to be a prayer that is answered. His kingdom come, his will be done. Praying God-centered, God-focused prayers does not cause us to, to give up on prayer, but causes us to dive deeper into prayer. We also see them praying with confidence because they are praying Scripture. Um, I know whenever I was a young boy, I'd pray laying in bed at night. It would be one of the last things I did. Um, but I would pray in bed at night, and I kind of had this rote prayer that I went through. I'd pray, all right, Lord, help and be with my mom, my dad, and Clint and Tom, my brothers, be with mom, mom, papa, granny and papa, and go through my great aunts and my uncles and cousins. And, and, and I just had the same prayer that I pray every night. And I think it was good to do that. But after a long while, I said, man, I'm, I'm just kind of on autopilot. Like, I'm not even thinking about what I'm saying anymore. I'm just, no, I ought to do it, and I'm doing it. It, it, it makes me think about oftentimes when I'm at the church and oh man, it's time to go home, I get in the car and I don't remember the drive at all. I don't know how I got home, but I just started paying attention and I'm sitting in my driveway. I'm on autopilot. And oftentimes our prayers can feel like we are on autopilot. We're just doing the rote memory prayer that we've always done. But what the disciples did here is something that's beautiful, and I think it's a practice we ought to do as well. The disciples prayed God's word back to God. They took Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? And they prayed that text back to God. One of the ways that we can pray with confidence is whenever we pray God's words back to him because we know God is going to fulfill his word. We can pray with confidence. We try to teach our small groups to do this. When we had our men's breakfast earlier this month, we were talking about the need and the necessity for, for praying God's word back to, them, back to God. Uh, so we encourage you to do that. I think finally, the last thing we see is that we ought to be praying for the mission. We ought to be praying for the mission. We see John... And Peter coming together, they're praying with their friends. We see them praying with confidence to God. We see them praying God's scripture back to himself. And we also see them praying the mission of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What were they praying? They were praying the mission. Oftentimes when we pray, we rightly pray for the situations we're in. We pray for whoever's sick. We pray for the, the situation that we are worried about and that we're concerned with. And, and I just have to wonder sometimes in my own prayer life, how many of my prayers are about my own comfort. If I were to just tally them up and say, how many of my prayers are about my own comfort? How many of my prayers are about God's mission being accomplished? Which, which would be weightier? And I have no doubt when I, when I look at my prayers, my prayer list, 
I would say I probably pray way more for my own comfort than I do for the mission of God. I want you to look at how they prayed. Here were the disciples living under the threat of being arrested, living under the fear or under the threat of of being beaten, under the threat of being killed. But did they pray for God to change the situation? Did they say, Father, we don't know why the nations are raging or why they're plotting in vain, but Lord, we'd really love it if you would change the heart of the high priest and that of the elders, that we might have freedom of speech. That, that, that's not what they prayed. They did not pray that God would change the situation. They prayed that God would change their hearts. Father, I am going through it right now. I'm facing a trial. And Father, I pray that you give me the ability to use this trial for your glory. That I could use what I'm going through to speak with boldness to those who ask where my hope lies. He does not ask to change the situation. He asks for God to change their heart so that they could face the situation with boldness. Jesus, in his ministry in Matthew chapter 9, Scripture tells us that he went to the countryside. He's preaching and teaching, proclaiming the good news. It says this in chapter 9, that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. Jesus is saying that when we pray, we ought to pray the mission of God. When we pray, we ought to pray for people who do not know God to repent and to believe the good news. That when we pray the mission, we ought to be praying that God would send people out into the world to herald the gospel message so that those people can repent and believe. I think for us to to approach this passage faithfully today, the application we need to make here is that we just need to make a list. We need to make a list in our minds, or if you've got your bulletin and a pen with you, you need to make a list of saying, who in my family, whether it be parents, spouse, children, siblings, who in my family does not know Jesus Christ? Who, are, if they were to die today, they would die in separation from God and be an eternity in hell. Who would be on that list? And after you go through your family, make a list of co-workers and acquaintances and friends outside the church. Just making that list and following Jesus' commandment. Pray that those people would come to know Jesus. That's, that's, that's the, the impetus of this command that Jesus is giving us in Matthew chapter 9. And it's kind of also understood that if we are praying for them to come to know Christ, it's also kind of implied that we would be the laborers that we would be the ones going out, 
saying, I've been praying for my family to come to know Christ. I am going to be the one to share the gospel with them. I know oftentimes you think, man, I just don't know enough. I need to go to church a little bit longer so I can be a little bit more prepared to share the gospel. And I just encourage you once again to to, to realize that that's rubbish. Um, If you know enough to repent of your sins and to believe in Jesus, you know enough to tell other people to repent of their sins and to follow Jesus. So I encourage you, like the disciples, to pray for boldness. Pray for boldness. Because I believe that God will answer the prayer of my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He will use you to grow his kingdom when we pray for his mission to be accomplished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We do thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for we thank you for the gift of prayer that we might come to you in confidence knowing that you are a God who hears and answers our prayers. And so Father, I pray that we would lift up holy hearts and holy hands that you would accomplish the mission that you have given us, O oh Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the gifts that God has given us.